This is the UK House Builder and Developer from Good to Great series with Gerard Ball, Managing Director of Human Capital Group, helping you build your UK house building teams and businesses fast. We find the top 15% of talent in the market by harnessing the power of big data, 24-7, 365 digital automation platforms and inbound strategies. Leveraged by 20 years successful mid to senior level recruitment experience. A veteran of the student accommodation sector, Bob Crompton is best known for his leadership, backed by venture capitalists, that saw him develop an international student housing portfolio from scratch in 2010 to sell for around £1.5 billion six years later. In this podcast, Bob gives a personal account of how a young Bolton man from a mining family moved into the residential sector, cutting his teeth under Barclay Group's Tony Pidgeley and recognised early on a golden opportunity in the student housing boom. He describes the journey of building a successful and dynamic team and culture, navigating the political and financial landscape of the build-to-rent market and what opportunities for the future lie within it. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the Good to Great series. I'm very much looking forward to getting into the big picture of how you grew your student housing business, 360 Developments and its subsidiaries, from two people in 2010 and sold for £1.4 billion in 2017. What I'd like to understand just at the beginning is how you came into residential development. Okay, well, it, it was a little bit of a circuitous route that I got into residential development. Mm. I, I left school at 16. I'm from Bolton. Right. And, um, my dad was a miner. So I, when I left school, I got a job as a technician apprentice at GEC. It was good training and they put me through university and I ended up with an MBA. Right. And I, I was happy there. Mm. But then I got an offer I couldn't refuse from an American company called Enron. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> yeah. And that... Yeah, I, I travelled the world and, um, yeah, it didn't end very well. Mm. So not long after the turn of the century, I uh, I was on my knees, basically. I didn't have a job and um, yeah, negative equity on the house right. and, you know, kid at private school, all that stuff mm. that puts pressure on you as a, as a, as a parent. Mm. And I didn't know what to do, really. The oil price wasn't really working at that time and what I knew about was power, oil and gas. So I spoke mm. to a headhunter who said why don't you go to London and speak to these guys about building residential? Mm. And I thought, well, that's, that doesn't make any sense, but mm. nothing ventured. Right. So I, I went and had a chat with um, Roger Lewis and Tony Pidgeley at Barclay Homes. Right, okay. And um, that's a great business. Mm. And uh, quite candidly, I, I said to uh, Roger, why on earth would you want me to come and work in mm. your your company? And, and So were you, were, you, were you going into Barclay then to like be a project director? Well, I don't know, to be honest. It was oh, one of those turn up and have a chat. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, Roger was a great guy. I think he's retired now some time ago. But he mm. was a great, he was chairman. Right. And I uh, got on quite well with Roger. And then he put me in front of Tony. And, and, and I said, why on earth do you want me here? Mm. And they, I think quite brightly said, Bob, if you can build a power station in India, mm. then you can do a block of flats in Kensington. Mm. And, and they they realised that the skill set required to deliver residential property yeah. was changing. Right. It wasn't like buying a greenfield, brownfield site, building a housing estate, mm. putting a cul-de-sac, big houses in Surrey. Barclay were changing. They were becoming major urban regeneration business. What, what sort of year was well, this? So 
2002, three maybe. So this is just when Barclay started to yeah. come into London and yeah. starting to build towers. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think it's a big secret. Tony Pizzle is the best land buyer yeah. <laughs> in the world. He can spot, he can vision things on pieces of land that nobody else could at that time. Right. Now, people claim to do it now, but I think mm. he's the one who saw the uh, he saw the future in central London around right. the river and okay. he's transformed that, that part of the country and, and credit to the guy. Okay. A lot of it came from him. Okay. Yeah. And just out of interest, building a large-scale project in London residential development versus building a power station, I know it's going to be different, but... Did you take to it like to like a fish? Well, I, I loved it. And, you know, I'm, I'm English. We've all got an interest in homes. You know, I got involved in sales and marketing in a way that the way I hadn't previously. Right. You know, so selling a billion pound project in China is very different than selling a, a million pound flight in Kensington. You know, there was a guy called Rickson. He was sales and marketing guy. He was a genius. So right. I learned a lot from him. Mm. That was in Kensington. And, and it opened my eyes to a whole different working mm. but I did see that the house builders that had been there a long time they weren't used to managing major major multi-million pound right. contracts you know subcontracts big packages groundworks it was different to building a big house in Surrey right and this, the, you know these guys were more than capable okay. but it was just a different project management attitude and getting things done on time to budget in sequence it's not easy. It's yeah. certainly not easy. Yeah. I'd had some experience on, on the planning and land side elsewhere, but for things like Section 36 agreements, which used to take overhead lines and power, mm-hmm. power lines across people's land, easements, that sort of thing. So I was, I was reasonably uh, conversant with that. But I learned a lot. In, the, in my, whatever it was, four or five years at Balhams, I learned a lot mm-hmm. and enjoyed it tremendously. But then... I did a little bit of work with a guy called Matthew Biddle. He ran a company called Barclay First. Okay. And he was building a a modular, I think it was 15, 18 storey tower in Brentford. Oh, right. For for nurses and students. And I helped him out a little bit on the technical side, I think. And I was really interested in that opportunity. And I saw what was going on there. He was, it was totally different to everything Barclay Homes do, really. So this is your introduction to the the, the student student housing. housing? And I moved on from Barclay to, uh, to run a student housing development and operation company, right. which is totally different to building a product for sale. You're building it to hold. So it was the start of the student housing boom. And, and the reason is that the number of students we've got now is, is a multiple of what it was 20 right. years ago. You yeah. know, if you think about when I was at school, probably 5% of people went to university. Now it's nearly 50%. Absolutely. Something like... 49% of 18-year-olds go to university. On top of that, the number of overseas students is probably five or ten times what it was mm-hmm. 20 years ago. Yeah. And these people need to live somewhere. And universities, and I hope they'll forgive me for saying this, aren't very good at managing residences. They're fantastic at the product. One of our best exports is our higher education. Right. But in terms of where the students live, it's all changed. So you're paying a fortune to go... I don't say notionally to London or Manchester or Liverpool to, to study economics or engineering. Yeah. But there's no one for you to live. Or if there is, it's an old <laughs> residence with, you know, you're, you're a 17-year-old girl from Kuala Lumpur sharing a flat with four rugby players in yeah. Asda. It doesn't work. So there was a massive demand in inner cities for people to 
people mm. to live densely. Yeah. And so student accommodation sector, I met a guy called Michael O'Flynn, Irish fella, who'd done yeah. it in Cork and in Manchester, and he wanted to grow that business. So I joined Michael as, as CEO. What was that business called? It was called Victoria Hall at the time. Right, okay. And that went pretty well. We grew it from, you know, I don't know what it was, 2,000 units to 5,000 units in, in three or four years. And, oh, wow. And it was a good business. Mm. Unfortunately, we were single banked with Anglo-Irish at the time. Right, okay. And, and once 2009 came, there was no way back from that. Oh. You know, even though we had a solid business and good management, mm. some of the other projects that the group was involved with mm. lost the confidence of the banks for whatever reason. Yeah. And some of them, some of it wasn't logical, but it was just that nobody wanted to lend any money in those days. Mm. Mm. So at that stage, mm. you're, you're seeing this company that you've built up, everything's going quite, you know, pretty reasonably well, as, as many people probably listening to this podcast also experienced that kind of 2008 crash. Yeah. So you were, you were pretty hard. Yeah. Well, we, you know, we, we thought we were at 60 70% LTV. Mm-hmm. The banks were supporting us. We were, we were no problem with interest cover. Mm-hmm. All our covenants were intact, but the bank ran out of money. Right, yeah. And they wanted their loans back, and then all, all of a sudden yields shifted, so our valuations shifted, mm-hmm. and... Our LTV went from 70% to 110%. Mm. And Victoria all kept going because it was good business, cash generative. But there was no way there was any reason to, uh, there was no way it was going to expand from there. Right. And so I got him, uh, land prices were at their lowest forever because nobody had any money. The mm. banks weren't lending any money. It was a total crash. The, yeah. The whole place was a mess. And then, I got a call to go and speak to an American private equity house, Oak Tree Capital. Well, you, had you left Victoria? No, no, it was at the time. Right. I was like, sit, kicking my heels, really, because I'm a builder. I like building and developing things. And, yeah. and operating the, the, the business was great, but it wasn't really going to work out. And, you know, the, the shareholders of the business had bigger problems than me. Right. So <laughs> uh, speaking to the Oak Tree guys was interesting in that they – were quite open. They, they got me in and they said, would you like to start a new business doing student housing? We'll have a good look at the sector. We think we can build a billion pound business in five years because it's private equity. What they do is they, yeah. they put the money in, they want it out again in five years, they want to get a money multiple, they've got IRR driven rather than... So if you're a house builder, it's return on capital. Right. If the, the private equity model is, is driven on money multiple IRR. So typically you will go to a Blackstone or an Apollo or an Oak Tree right. and they'll give you a target of three times money in five years, two times money in five years or an IRR of 20%. Right, okay. That's the return on their investment. Right. And, and the, the hurdles are massive. They've got a capability. They're so bright. They're young. You know, yeah. it was quite strange for me as a, whatever it was, 40-odd-year-old guy sat in front of somebody in their 20s Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, giving me, it was a Harvard MBA and done, you know, yeah. five years at McKinsey and all that stuff. So they, they were right, super, okay. super right. Right, okay. And so I'm in an office in Nashville and they were saying, we can give you 250 million, you need to make it into a billion, we'll give you five years to do it. I was on my own and I, although I was talking the talk because yeah. Yeah, I thought it would be quiet, I, I never really took it that seriously. Mm-hmm. So I, I told them everything they needed to know, wanted to know and uh, didn't even get that excited about it. Really. Oh, really? Yeah, they're yeah. just like Harvard graduate, MBA sorts who, who are, you know, you come across and you think, 
yeah, they're talking the talk, but Didn't they've got a nice that. office in, in, in Knightsbridge, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And then very, very quickly, they made me a job offer. I accepted it and I thought, well, that's it. And then they, when you're nearly 15, they, they sent me off to meet somebody for a chat. Turned out it was like a full day of psychometric interrogation. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Which you don't, yeah. you know, you're, I wouldn't you're, have not used, yeah, yeah. you're not used to doing, but they did everything by the book. They, mm. They'd been to the management college. They knew what you were supposed to do. They knew what skill sets they were looking for. Right, okay. And, you know, a guy called Niall Cartoon, great guy. Mm. Another guy, Sam Welly Capoletti. You know, they, they'd been to Oxford, Ockham. You know, they were super, super, super bright. Yeah. And they, they, they ate numbers for breakfast. Different level. Yeah. But they couldn't. They couldn't build anything, and they, <laughs> but they understood. You know, one day they'll buy a bank, the next day they bought an ice cream company, the next day they 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 buy a builder. You know, right. But I was what they call a platform company where they invested in management teams, mm. and they um, they sort of put the money in and the support in, mm. and you grow that business, and they float it off or sell it off or whatever. No. So I, I I'd come across private equity before, but never quite at that level, and so I did all these psychometrics and stuff like mm. that. Thinking, hang on, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah. You know, but I, I went back and spoke to them and whatever I did must have done okay because I can't add up. And, yeah. You know. So they, they said, right, you're on, go and get an office. There's a check for whatever it was, half a million quid. Right. I mean, it was, there was a lot more checks and balances in place than that. But <laughs> there's, there's your initial founder and then go on. And I, I had to go and set up a bank account, which took ages because right. I had to find an office. Mm. And I, it was just me. Right, okay. And it was exciting. And they, you know, I signed up something called a management incentive plan, like um, whereby I would get a, a percentage of the uplift in the value of the business. Right. Given that the business was worth nothing, yeah, you know, if we made money, I'd get a percentage. And I sat down and worked it out for, well, I could make a lot of money here. But right. I just laughed at it and I thought, yeah, I bet you can. They'll just, because you hear stories about working with private equity and management teams not yeah. exactly getting what they expected. So I just mm-hmm. laughed at it and took it on and these guys were great to work with. They had energy, mm. boundless energy. Some well he's like one of my best friends now. And, uh, right. It's it's just they 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 did research. They had macro sort of knowledge of markets, demographics, income, age, everything. Mm. So they they decided which sectors they could invest in. And student housing was one of them. Right. Okay. But they they had a resource in India whereby you would tell them something and then the next day like a 50 page report would come back overnight because they would have a, an office full of MBAs in India doing really? research for you so it would come back on PowerPoint or whatever you wanted it would yeah. just be done instantaneously it was a bit like felt like I was in Wolf of Wall Street right because you know? <laughs> they were so, and they were just so bullish mm. well we're at, right at the bottom of the cycle land is cheap Mm. And we've got all this capital. The banks aren't lending. There is no. You look at your competitors at the time. They were Opal, who ended up collapsing for yeah. different reasons. United, who were listed, who weren't really going for much. Then mm. that was about it. Really, Liberty Living a fund of you know like a retail fund. They weren't doing much at mm. the time. So nobody was buying land. Nobody was developing. They were saying you've got this window, Bob, and you've got to go out and spend this money. <laughs> and it, so, uh, so it's you. It's the you, you're supported from the, the the team from from Oak Tree, which yeah. sounds yeah. like it's very strong. Yeah. Then did you sit down with a and write down a business plan yeah. of yeah. right? This is who I need to hire. And yeah, they they sort of said this is the this is what we want to spend. This is the value we want to get to. You need to write us a business plan, mm. and you know I can do that. 
my spreadsheet, you know, it's because there's, but I can, I can do that. So I did this business plan, and because it's oak tree, private, you know, you, you don't get like two weeks to do it, you get the weekend. So I did this business plan, went to them, and they interrogated it to the nth degree. And then I sat down with the, the guy who runs Oak Tree Europe, a guy called Caleb Kramer. Again, it was a similar conversation. Caleb, why do you need me? These are the smartest guys I've ever met. You're right. Yeah. You know, they're articulate, they're numerate, you know, they... <laughs> and he said, well, you don't get it, but they come from a very analytical background, so they will measure and monitor everything you do and right. give you every support. But you're the entrepreneur, the decisions mm. will come from you. Right. Yeah. And these guys, whilst... They just won't be able to do what you do. They don't have your network. They don't. They don't know the market like you do. So we'll give you every support. And it, it was. So were they, were they, sorry, were the oak tree guys? Were they were they brought into? No, they were already there. Right. Okay. So they they were in they were in London. Yeah. So they they'd had a lot of success with. They bought Countrywide, the estate agents. Oh right. Which okay. is a, a sad story now, but they floated it for yeah. a lot of money. So they, they, they bought Countrywide, they bought um, R&R Ice Cream, that was another success okay. story. Yeah. You know, they've, they've, now they've got uh, Titlestone, which is a lending okay. facility, I think they got rid of that. So they, they build successful businesses and, and move them on. So in terms of your initial team, who's, who's focused on the re- re- residential development side, so there's, there's you and then... You... Well, I needed, a, I, needed a, <laughs> I needed a land buyer because I needed, I needed a pipeline. Right. Uh, a guy I used to work with, a Victoria guy called Simon Pollitt. Right, okay. Yeah. He came with me. Well, I started and two weeks later, Simon joined me. Mm. And we went out and we did some deals. The first few deals, we were expecting, oh, well, you know, we need to get a bank on board and this and that. Because, you know, the, the first deals we did, we went out and bought an existing asset just to prove that to the market that we had the money and right. that um, we were serious. So we, walked, we bought a... Home residence in Newcastle. Okay. Smallish, well, 200 odd units, I think 300 units, something like that. And it wasn't a lot of money. Mm. 19 million rings a bell, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Anyway, then we proved to the market we had money mm. and all the agents and everybody <laughs> were all over us because it was 2010 and nobody was doing anything. Yeah. Again, went back to Barclay Homes, Matthew Biddle. So a forward, forward bought scheme in Acton, Matthew okay. was doing. Mm. Again, I, I'm not giving any secrets away. It's just, Public record, I think we paid 60 million or something like that for it. Right. And okay. um, we had no bank in place. And Oaktree just backed it with a balance sheet, which is phenomenal. In those days, nowadays, it's every pension fund, every private equity house has got loads of money. In those days, nobody had any money. Right. Oaktree were totally committed to the project and they backed it with their, their balance sheet, which was fabulous. Your initial goal was to buy all pre built. Yeah, the, the idea was that there would be some distressed assets. You might buy a business or, or whatever. It, it came that way. We didn't really want to take build risk. Right. Okay. And we didn't have time to go out and fight with the planners and this and that. So right. Then we bought Matthew's scheme. Mm. And then it became clear that other people were looking at what we're doing. You know, we're getting a bit active. And we started buying land and building out. So student housing, typically you get 500 units in, mm. in your building and... It's a project and you've got to finish it on the date. So if you, it's no point finishing in the middle of September whenever all the students turn up on the 1st of September. So yeah. it might be a £50 million bill project, but mm. it doesn't go late. It cannot go late. Right, yeah. So it's a major project. And there are timescales because if you miss that window, you've got another year to wait. Mm. And you normally contract with the universities to send you their foreign students and stuff like that. So we started off 
We started off doing that and then we worked with contractors we knew. We bought a skin in Bournemouth, one in Acton, one in uh, Aldgate. Okay. Have uh, they new build projects yeah, that you yeah, did as well? Yeah, new build. So we bought... We bought land sort of with planning or about to get planning. Mm. We worked with a main contractor, Watkins Jones mainly, who are a good contractor. Yeah, I know yeah. Watkins Jones. Yeah. And um, we delivered lots of skins. So we were doing probably five, six skins, two and a half, three thousand units a year, mm. which at the time was probably more than anybody else had done. Now lots of people do it because yeah. they can, but at the time nobody had ever done that. So we were all over the place. Right. And... Um, we enjoyed it. We had, we had a laugh, really. Um, lots of things went for us. Lots mm-hmm. of things went for us. The banks, HSBC, Santander, and especially Investec Bank, okay. were so supportive of what we're doing. So supportive of what we're doing. In terms of your your, your, your team organisation, from, from maybe before I go there, what were the big jumps in development of the business? So there's, you know, the, the, the first jump is you get well, your yeah. firm, then it's yeah. getting the, the Initially, land. Initially, it was Simon and I who were doing deals. Right, yeah. So he's a, he's a fantastic land buyer, deal doer, whatever. I mean, he's a youngish fella, still in his 30s, I think. But but at that time, he was he was probably late 20s. But mm. he had – land buyers are strange. They, they've got a little black book. They know who's got what. They know who <laughs> owns what. And, they, and Simon was very familiar with lots of cities. Right. So, you know, he'll know people in Bristol, Newcastle, Manchester, Liverpool. He just knows people mm. and he yeah. knows who owns what and who – who wants to sell, who really doesn't want to sell, mm-hmm. who's skin, basically, right. who needs the money. So we were, we were out doing deals and then we had to deliver them, which was yeah. harder. Right, I bet. Much harder. And, I, and once we built them, we needed to operate them. Mm-hmm. So I knew a guy called Brian Welsh from Liberty Living. He became operations director right. and eventually COO. He knew more about how to manage student accommodation than anybody. And mm-hmm. he was very strong on, on marketing. Right. So we, partly for... Financial reason to build OPCO, PropCo structure. So the OPCO was more or less run by Brian, mm. the operating business. Right, okay. And the property business was Simon. Okay. Oh, and right. we, were, we were recruiting heavily at that time, so development guys. Because mm. it's okay saying, yeah, well, we've subcontracted it all to a main contractor, so it'll just get built on time to budget. That mm. doesn't work. So you've got to be all over it. You need your own guys. Yeah, you need your own guys to manage that development. So... We were, we were hiring those sort of people. In the end, I just did it from contacts, people I knew, because we were still in a recession and people wanted, they were already, but people wanted to work in a dynamic growing business mm. rather than a business where they were waiting to get made redundant <laughs> or, you know, that yeah. projects were getting cancelled and there was no debt. So people I knew were, were happy to come on board. So the other two guys, again, quite rightly said to me, Bob, you need an HR director. And I said, guys, I don't need an HR director. What I need is my little black book yeah. and I'll ring people up yeah. who I know and trust and they'll join the business and we'll grow this business. No, it doesn't work like that. Bob, you need an HR. And I, you know, so we have the debate mm. and I lost the debate because these guys have worked at McKinsey and all that. They know how businesses work. Mm. At the end of the day, they knew more than me about that sort of thing. Yeah, they, we brought in an HR director and it was a great decision. It just took probably... 30 or 40 hours a week off my time. Because at that time, I was working eight hours a day, seven days a week, building mm. a business, having great fun. Yeah. But a lot of the people issues were starting to get yeah. more complex because we were a growing business. We, mm. you know, from two people to 10 people to 20 people to, you know, right. it starts to grow. And then you've got, once the, the residences were operating, 
you've got a, a sort of geographical challenge as well. So you've got a place in Newcastle, you've got a place in Bournemouth, you know, we have schemes in Plymouth, and they take yeah. take time travelling around. Yeah. So, you know, the London ones were, were one thing, but the North West, the North East, it takes a bit of sorting out. So we, we got an HR director in, Kate, she was great, and she brought with her whole suite of all the stuff that you need, all the procedures, all the other stuff that proper businesses had. <laughs> Whereas I, you know, I was too busy having fun, really, and, yeah. and buying things and doing deals. So I think that was all on the back burner. Okay, yeah. all of that, sorted it all out. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the end, she got investors in people. We were, we were a seriously well-managed business. Right, wow. And, and we kept growing. Just yeah. before, Bear, you're, you're, you're a geographically diverse yeah. business. Did you open up satellite offices to cover the northwestern? No. no, we did everything out of uh, out of London. Right, and we we said to our regional, from an operational perspective, mm-hmm. we said to our regional managers, so you've got this residence here in Liverpool. It's mm-hmm. cost us forty million quid. Yeah, you are a managing director. You're responsible for operations, budgets, maintenance, technical issues, staff, HR, all of that, marketing. You're a mini managing director. Right, okay. And so also, for each yeah, different project. Yeah, for each right. city. Yeah. And our, our systems, because we had no legacy issues, mm. our systems were good. So the the guy running Lincoln thought they, they were autonomous. Yeah. They're not autonomous. We knew everything. We knew was he based up in? Yeah, East so East. you have a general manager in every city. Right, okay. Yeah. And they thought they were autonomous. They weren't. We knew Control. everything because our systems were good. And they were all new and they were best in class. So, we, again, another, I'm jumping about a bit, but another thing we had, at the beginning, we had two or three CFOs, FDs, call them what you like, right. and they couldn't quite get what we were trying to do. Right. And one of them was very good, actually, but he, he couldn't get the oak tree culture. He couldn't get the, you know, I don't care if it's Saturday, I want it right. in an hour sort of stuff. Yeah. Okay. And we recruited a guy called Matt Taylor, who's the best CFO I've ever worked with, without a shadow of a doubt. Because... Mm. When you're running major projects or you're running small businesses or whatever, mm. you, you've got to work closely with your FD, CFO, yeah. call what you like. And a lot of them, by nature, are a little bit on the spectrum, a little bit controlling. <laughs> Matt was so entrepreneurial and bullish. Right. But at the same time, I'd total control over everything mm. and his systems were spot on. Mm. We, we got on great. In terms of the company culture, yeah. I, I appreciate it's possibly driven a bit by Oak Tree, but... What was the company culture like and what were you it trying was, to develop? It was, I'm going to say this because I'm so proud of it, but it was dynamic. It was positive. We didn't have a blank culture. Mm. We made mistakes and we got on with it and we sorted it out. And people got promoted rapidly because you're in a business that, that's, you know, got two people in it. Mm. And in two years' time, you've got 40 people in it. Yeah. Chances are, if you're good, rather than bring managers in, we mm. promoted people from within and they brought their own people in underneath them mm. and that worked out pretty well our bill guy tom banning fantastic guy yeah. you know simon had a guy uh, i wouldn't say he was like an investment analyst but an investment property a proper guy but right. we got him from an agency um cbre i think he was or right. okay. cushman's or something like that mm. but his appraisals his spreadsheets were good enough to satisfy the oak tree guys oh, right. <laughs> because they yeah they, they would write a big check well, they would write a big check as long as they had an inch thick justification, appraisal, cash flows, marketing plan, yeah. operating, you know, you name it, all that. And this guy, Christian, would be able to knock those up in the exactly the same format that mm. Oak Tree needed to get credit approval. 
So they would go to credit committee on a Friday and the thing would get done. Yeah. So other places, you know, you hear about pension funds, that they take weeks to get through credit committee. We could do it in a day because they knew what was in the pipeline that was coming up. Sam Welly would work with Christian mm. to prime all the members of credit committee. We want to do this deal. And if we don't do it, Bob's going to get angry and, you know. Right. Because I, I, I was a little bit of a... Was it demand? Angry man. Yeah, 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 it was. It was... They were supportive, but the performance was everything, really. Yeah. You know, if you say you're going to do a deal, you have to do the deal. You know, you said, if you didn't know the numbers, yeah. it was it was like Dragon's Den every, every Monday morning on a phone call. You don't want to go into the meeting. No, no you don't <laughs> go unless you've got your ducks in a row. And that, yeah. was, that was fine because I was supported by people who, who, who were just good at that. Because I'm not good at that. You personally, have you been like that throughout your career? Well... If you're running projects, which is what I did, you have to know where you are, you know, in terms of earned value, time-wise, project budget-wise, all of that. You need to know your stuff. Mm. But you also need to know that the people who are with you yeah. are feeding you the right information. You can totally trust it. Because yeah. you can't do everything yourself, you know. You, you're building a major project. You can't understand the piling calculations, the structural steel calculations, the, the power system calculate. You can't. You know that they're there and you've got to trust them and believe yeah. that they're right. Mm. But you can't interrogate everything. That's how, how you end up in a, in a nut house, isn't it? Trying to do everybody else's job as well as your own. So, And obviously, you know, the company started off, you know, going great guns. How do you keep that pace well, and energy after going? Two, after two or three years, we'd got great systems in place, great people in place, and we were flying. But it was getting harder to hit the hurdles in the UK because the banks had opened up again. They'd started lending money. We were competing against nobody, really, in, in 2010. By 2012, 13, mm. the house builders were back, you know, and it was, it was especially in urban centres, mm. because that's where, where people want to live now. Mm. It was harder to buy land. Bill costs started going up. Mm. So our hurdles were harder to hit. The macro picture, because I'd previously worked overseas, they said, well, let's have a look at Dublin. Right, OK. It's a world city. It's got several fantastic universities, and I... Myself and several of the other guys were saying, like Simon said, I haven't worked a Dublin Bob. He said, basket case. And it was. You know, it was totally bankrupt. The whole country was, was a basket case. Yeah. So we recruited a, a Danish fella, Thomas Storgard, right. and we were going to do Europe. And Oak Tree was saying, we will buy distressed debt from banks, we'll do whatever it takes, but we'll go to <laughs> the major cities in Europe yeah. and we'll do what we've done in the UK because... There's competition in the UK now. Nobody's doing anything. So there wasn't a crane for like five years in Dublin when we got yeah. our first crane. We bought a site in Dublin and it's not an easy place to do business. Yeah. You know, you, you used to go to Dublin, you get a taxi and the taxi driver would say, are you going to Narma, which was their bank bank? Yeah. I said, no, I'm not going to Narma. And then they, you get in next week and you say, did you buy that site then, the one in, um, yeah. in Minories? And you think... Hang on a minute. So everybody in, in the whole of Ireland knows about real estate, yeah. and knows what you do, knows who you are. So we did it. We went there, mm. we bought a site, we built it out with our own money. No debt. Obviously, nobody was lending money on real estate in Dublin. Right. No, no debt whatsoever. Mm. Built it all out with our own money. And then by, by the time we bought the site and it was half built, mm. people were fighting to lend us money. Irish banks, UK banks, Investec wanted to put money and they were so supportive of us yeah. because that was a personal relationship that I had with the investor guys right okay and they, they believed in the sector and seen what we'd done so we grew with them really so yeah we went to Dublin did three or four schemes in Dublin okay but each scheme from buying the, the cycle 
from buying the land to building it out to operating it, two or three years minimum. So we got booming in Dublin, then we went to Madrid. Right, okay. Madrid, again, basket case. Yeah. Real estate, dead. Banks, <laughs> banks didn't even know where the debt was, never mind how much was owed. <laughs> we, bought a, we bought an existing scheme in Madrid from a bank mm. who, because the, the existing owner was struggling, not because the scheme was struggling, the scheme was great, but the, the, it was part of a much bigger loan. Mm. So the bank made them, made them, Santander, I won't say they made them, I've got to be careful what I say, but the bank encouraged them to sell this scheme to us so they could get some of their debt back. And so we did that. And then we bought a couple of sites in Madrid. Right. And started to build those out, three, four, five sites in Madrid. Right. Went to Barcelona, bought a couple there. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And so we were booming. Mm. And we were looking at new markets. And so, so the information to go and build in Barcelona, Madrid, or another yeah. European city, the information for it, was that driven from Oak Tree? Yeah. Did that they provide? Yeah, they, I mean, they came with a macro picture saying, well, you know, there's, there's 200 not 1,000 students in Madrid. Right. There's this many residences. Most of them are owned by the church. The mm. kids don't like them. Barcelona's a world city. There's nowhere for the students to live. You know, if you're, if you're from... University of Kansas or yeah. Notre Dame or whatever, and you want to do a semester in Barcelona, it was difficult. But but then, what about actually getting the thing well, built? Because in the in the in the UK, yeah, you can trust you can to, to, to a certain our, extent. Our, our so DLA Piper are our lawyers, international law. They so they've got an office in Madrid, Barcelona, wherever. Yeah. So we use DLA quite a lot. Mm. Garrigues, who I knew from a previous life. In Madrid, which I'm not going to go into, but you know, there there are serious law firms. These these are proper cities, right? Yeah. You know, you, you just think of London's central universe, which it is, but mm. <laughs> there's there, there's serious people who can do business in in yeah. these places. Right. So we bought land. We bought. We didn't sub. We 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 sort of let the contracts on sort of fixed price lump sum type. Mm. Anybody like JCT. Right, okay. Type contracts, but in Spanish, which was difficult. And we hired Spanish advisors and Spanish people. Yeah. And we got so lucky, you know, that Miguel, the guy, the builder, and Chris, the ops guy in Spain, yeah. we set up an office in Madrid and we tried to replicate what we were doing in the UK in Madrid. Yeah. We ran Ireland as though it was just like Liverpool or Newcastle. Yes. Yeah. The culture was very different, but um, there's a whole new yeah. story about that. But so we, we've got this whole thing going. And then in the UK, a lot of our assets had stabilised and the right. people who were interested in the risky plays, the private equity and all that stuff, mm. we'd got the value that we wanted out of it. So, you know, we'd, we'd hit all the hurdles and, mm. like, schemes that we bought for, say, 50 million were now worth 100 million and we'd got debt on them. So the the return on equity, the IRR, yeah. was, was supercharged, yeah. but it had stabilised now. We were going to get... The rents would go up 3 4 5% a year, but we'd made our money on value. Okay. So Oaktree said, what we want to do now is sell the UK portfolio, or part of it, the bit that stabilised. Yeah. Was that 20... Probably about 2016. 2016, yeah. okay. And um, I don't know, I had mixed feelings about it because mm. it was my baby and we'd built this operating company, the student housing company, and several businesses and I didn't want to lose the people yeah. I didn't want to lose my baby and I felt we had more legs I wanted to float the Oakshire guys sat me down and explained to me how these things work <laughs> <laughs> so we we, sell, we sold we want our money in and we yeah, want it out yeah, in five yeah, years that's how it works and, that, yeah. and they were great and you know we got all the investment banks in because it was it was quite kind of the first tranche was about 500 million I would say yeah and so 
we've got all the investment banks in and they wanted to go with one of their mates in the investment banks and I totally mm. said, no, I wasn't going to do that. We use JLL, right, okay. along the side, yeah. who understand this sector more than most and whose people I knew and trusted. Right. And, it, you know, so we used JLL and ran a process and we sold to a consortium of Greystar, which is an American competitor, mm. and Goldman Sachs. Oh, right, okay. And okay. that went pretty well. But in terms of the business as a whole, the build to rent versus the build to sell, what yeah. was the what was the split and why why did you set set it up that way? Well, the whole UK residential market now is dominated by build to rent, build to rent. You must build to rent. So, you know, LMG, MG, Aviva, they're all invested in build to rent, big blocks of flats yeah. where millennials go and rent. And you can get a long-term yield out of that. It's an asset-backed. So it's your pension. They invest in an asset-backed block of flats in Manchester where everybody rents them. Yeah. You're getting a running yield of 3 4 5%. It's going to go up at inflation. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like annuity money. Right. So all the big funds are looking at that now. Yeah. And they're all looking at student housing because it's the same play except the yields are better on student housing. But it's where it is because millennials don't necessarily want to buy anywhere now. Right. Everybody wants to live in a city centre. And if you want to get planning now for a residential scheme mm. in London, the affordable stuff you've got to go through and all the mm. jumping through hoops, it's just not worth it. Right. Unless you're doing a massive scheme at scale and you've got a team as good as Barclay Homes or something like that, it's really mm. just not worth the aggravation. Mm. You know, the mayor's just in a total tis was. He just... Goes on the radio, goes on the news, shoots all these numbers. We're building this, we're doing this is affordable, that's affordable. Yeah. It's total nonsense. It's an utter, unmitigated disaster. It's really difficult to build anything, but flavour of the month now is built to rent. Okay. And it's supported by big institutions. So people like the mayor and the planners, oh, we're all very supportive of build to rent. Mm. So you can get that scheme through a lot better than you can do just a build to sell scheme. Right. So as long as it's political mm. and it's supported by the government, well, we've got to get the numbers up rental homes, yeah. you know, and we need professional landlords, not Mr. and Mrs. Miggins. And, right. You know, okay. so we've got professional landlords and everybody's putting billions into built-to-rent high-rise mm. screens. And you can build them dense. So all the, um, yeah, you've still got the stuff about spatial requirements and, mm. you know, you've got the tree officer and the views officer and the facade officer and all the other hoops you've got to go through, but they're just a little bit more supportive of that scheme than they would be if right. you were going to build a, a scheme and sell them all. Right, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, and the affordable element, yeah, you've got the debate, but it's not the same. Mm. You know, they're not as uh, rabid about it. Right. So, build to rent is the future. Operational real estate, mm. you build it, you own it for a long time. Right. You take the running yield from it. So, for a pension fund, that's not a bad asset. But for a house builder, what you want to do is buy the land, build the scheme, sell them off, buy another one, build the scheme, yeah. sell them off. And that's a return on capital type business. It's a totally different business, really, and it requires a different type of capital. Okay. So build to rent is the future. I mean, multifamily, they call it in America. It's, it's all, all over the place in every city, and it'll be the same in the UK very soon. Do you think the house builders will follow suit? No, they'll... Well, sometimes you, you can see the house builders will build a whole development and flog it off to a pension fund for built to rent. Right. But they don't want to hold and operate. You know, too much hassle. Too much. Yeah, it's not <laughs> what they do. They're not set up for it. You know, you, if your broadband doesn't work, it's the end of the world. If You know, yeah. there's a lot of stuff associated with operational real estate, mm. which is that house builders are not interested in. They want to build the units. 
they want to do it well and they want to move on and do the next one and that's that's yeah. their business but going forward the clever guys at Apollo Oak Tree and mm. Blackstone they've worked out that senior living is going to be massive we're getting older and people are going to want somewhere to live mm. and older people don't necessarily want to live on a farm in Somerset they want to be in the city they yeah. So there's high density senior living, which is it's going to be massive. Mm. There's student young people housing. Now there's something called co-living, right. which is like halls of residence but for grown-ups. So you're <laughs> 20-somethings or, you know, you're a 50-year-old divorcee and you want somewhere to live, you go and live in this co-living yeah. building. Where the rooms are very small, mm. but the, the amenity space is fantastic mm. and everything but hall of residence in now. And, again, the planners are very supportive of this, so they don't say you've got to have X number of family homes and this number of affordable units and all mm. that. They do, but you get a much better hearing and you can get stuff through and get it built because right. you don't get stuck in the planning quagmire that, that the mayor's created. So, And then let's, let's jump back again, and it's just that that exit strategy. And it was um, JLS who... It was John Wang LaSalle mm. who, who acted for us on the, sale, on the first sale, and oh, that okay. went well. Oh, well, well, I mean, anecdotally, I said to the other guys, look, me and Philip Hillman or whoever from John's Langlaisel, we'll go and have a few lunches with people we know who will buy this kit. Right. We'll get a good deal and we'll move on. Yeah. And they said, no, we'll run a process. And we ran a process and we got institutional buyers from all over yeah. that I, you know, probably would have never thought Goldman Sachs would have got interested in this. Or, mm. And the process was run properly. It took a few months and we achieved a far, far greater price than I ever imagined. Really? Phenomenal. You portfolio premium, they called it. Mm. So, so a bit more than a few yeah. lunches then. And yeah, <laughs> and there was a lot more involved. And I learned a lot, again, about how you sell a business. It was selling an operational business, not real estate. And that's what I learned and that's what you... So... But putting it in a crude way, as an individual, you know, you've obviously learned a lot in your career about how banking works and contracts, etc. But how do, you, how do you as a person and as a business exit the business and, and make sure that you've not been, as I did say, a bit, a bit crude, ripped off. Yeah, well, private equity's got a reputation for mm. ripping off business owners or letting down people. That mm. wasn't my experience. They were fantastic. Everything they said they would do, they would do. Mm. Myself and the management team, we had a few contingency plans if, if they didn't deliver what they promised because we exceeded their expectations on this. They made hundreds of millions out of it. Right. And we got a small percentage of that. Mm. And we were out to it because that was the deal we had. We, it's hard to say because they never ever did anything to, to justify our mistrust, but we had this contingency plan. If they yeah. didn't come across with what they promised, what we were going to do, and I'm not mm. going to go into that because yeah. it's not right, but they did. They did to the letter. They right. paid up. Mm. And they, what we did, I feel, was the right thing. We spread out the MIP, the Management Incentive Plan, so 20-odd people within our business mm own shares in that business and we paid out on it. Right, okay. And that's the only way I felt we could justify what we'd done in selling the first tranche, mm. keep the business together and look these guys in the eye because I said to them when they joined us, we're going to float this business, you're going to be here forever, it's going to be a career for you and come on board. Mm. And they believed that and I believed that. So it wasn't a mitigating thing, it was just faith in them that they got carried in that business. So there's, there's quite a lot of people did okay out of it. Okay. And, you know, I probably could have done a lot better myself because I gave it away, if, if you like. But in terms of 
the performance of the business, the way the sales went, because it went in three or four tranches. Mm. Ireland was different, Spain was different, UK went in two tranches. So people stuck with us. We never lost people during that time, which right. is crazy. You would expect people to walk out, you know, you know and being, we're being sold. And at that time, property was booming, and yeah. stuff like that, but they, they stuck with it, not just because of the, the shareholding, but because they believed in it, you know, and they believed in me. So I felt the mm. least I could do was look after them the best I could. Okay, good. And then just as a, a, a closing question, we, we take you back to 2010 when it's just you and the land guy. Yeah. Um, in all of that time, in the six years, whatever it was, six, seven years, is there anything that you would have um, done differently or if there was somebody else looking to get involved with private equity or, or, or start their own company that you would... You would advise them that they must... Property is a cycle, especially residential property. Mm. You've got to get in at the bottom. There's no point. Well, there is a point. It depends on your cost of capital, where you're getting your money from. But getting in at the top of the market, mm. it makes it hard for you. And that's why the gurus, the Tommy Pigsleys of this world, they, they spot the cycle and they decide and they get it right. Yeah. Now, who knows whether now we're at the top of the cycle or not. You know, lots of people have said to me, Bob, you've called the top of the cycle, you've sold out, you've, you know... You moved to Spain. Well, I haven't really. It was just what the capital wanted to do. And I don't know. I still think in our inner cities, yeah. in every inner city from Mumbai to Melbourne to London to Paris to Barcelona, there's a shortage of places for people to live. Old people, young people, normal people, yeah. there's a massive shortage. Yeah. And I don't see why that I don't see why that's gonna change. Because, you know, we all know what's going on in Silicon Valley in New York. There's just nowhere for people to live. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't know where the cycle's going to go, to be honest. And to be honest, I don't care because I'm not in it anyway. <laughs> but, but if, you, if, you, if you're going to enter if you're going to enter a business, you've got to want, at least have a feel for where you are in the cycle yeah. and how you can get a return on your capital. Because if you're funded by a pension fund mm. who thinks 10% is a good return, mm. leveraged, yeah. which means you know 5% unleveraged, then that's fine. If you're in with private equity who's looking for 25%, then you need, your business plan needs to reflect that and you need to really believe it because if you don't believe it, you won't deliver it, you know, and you need a bit of luck, but it's just what it is. Okay, fantastic. Look, that was epic. Finish on that final point. Thank you very much for your time. Okay. Good stuff. Cheers. Nice to meet you. Discover how to build your UK house builder business and attract the top 15% of leadership talent using one-to-many platforms automation and 24-7, 365 proven digital strategies before your competition. Be sure to subscribe for more podcasts from the Good to Great series, featuring leading voices from the UK house building industry, from small to medium businesses to leading PLCs. Don't forget to rate and review so that we can continue to bring you the best content possible. For more information, call 0203 800 1080 or check out www.hc-group.co.uk and book a client or candidate blueprint strategy session.